Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. You'd open up your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5 as we begin the final chapter here in our journey through this book that was authored by the half brother of Jesus, a Jewish man who would end up being the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. A man that, as we look at this final chapter, you would think God must have spoken to him about the world that we live in. Because he's going to take some things that we look at as nearly sacred in our society and he's going to warn us. Tonight, bragging about bucks or perhaps boasting about money. Remember that the context when we left last time in verse 13 was that boasting about our plans and about our purposes and tomorrow and the things that we might do because we're just so brilliant and we map them all out. And tonight we come to chapter 5 and James begins by speaking to you who are rich. And again, I want to be very careful here because the Bible in no way, shape, or form condemns having wealth. It condemns what you do with wealth. Money itself is actually neutral. Depending on how you use it, what you use it for, and whether it becomes your God or not, determines whether wealth is a problem or a blessing. And so when James begins to speak, he's dealing with a situation that is very specific. And that is those who trust, as scripture says, in uncertain riches. In other words, their God actually has become their bank account. And so he mentioned that previously in chapter 4, and now he's going to illuminate that particular subject here in the first six verses. And I believe it's important because this area of life and living in our Western culture is one of the bigger traps that we face. I know people that have stopped attending church in the pursuit of wealth. I know people that no longer walk with the Lord because of the pursuit of riches. I know people whose marriages have blown apart because of the striving after the dollar. I know people who have lost their children because their money became more important than their family. I can tell you story after story after story, and in fact, my own story, my own journey when I was in business, is one that I could give you lots of very first-hand information about what goes on in the very wealthiest people's lives here in this nation. And it is to those people, to the people who had learned to love money more than God, that James now writes. And so would you join me? Let's pray, and we'll take the first six verses here in chapter 5. Father, we come to your house to fellowship and to praise and to honor you, to give you our attention for a few minutes 
so that you can speak to us. And I pray if there's anyone here tonight, if there's anyone online, if someone will be listening to this later and hear these words, that they wouldn't be discouraged but be encouraged. God, there's always the opportunity, as long as we hear your voice and turn, to leave behind those things which have so easily beset us and pick up our cross and follow you. And so if we're trusting in our riches, Lord, help us to know what to do and how to do it, to get you back in the first position in our lives. And so take your word and instruct us with it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now, you rich. The word that's used here, and we'll highlight some of these things in a few minutes, is not talking about someone who's got a few more bucks than somebody else. This is a person who is fabulously wealthy. It's someone whose life is extravagant. It's someone who's gone over the edge. It's the person who probably wears the diamond-studded grill, who's got the bling around their neck, who probably has a Bugatti and has a lifestyle that is one of extravagance. So make sure that you understand, James is not talking to a person who's doing well. James is not talking to a person who has a good profession and makes a good living and even has some excess. James is talking to someone who we might say is filthy rich. Rich, rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Or you have heaped up treasure in the last days. This is clearly about someone whose dependence is not on the Lord but is on the stuff that they own, possess. The content of their bank account is the most important thing in their life. And I pray there's no one here that's like that tonight. But I think it's important that we understand as believers so that we can give good counsel when that friend or that family member comes and says, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about doing this, but I kind of have to sell myself to it. I have, to, I have to give it the attention that it's due. I really need to take care of, of my things more than I need to take care of my relationship with the Lord. For indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where that phrase is used. It's found over 200 times in the Old Testament. This is the most holy name of Yahweh. This is the one who set the Sabbath in place for the Jewish people. The one to whom you were to work six days and on the seventh day make it holy unto the Lord. Very important distinction here. This is written to the workaholic. The person who no longer takes a Sabbath. The person who refuses to honor the Lord. For you have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned 
You've murdered the just, and he does not resist you. And so the first thing that we see here is really what we might call the woes of the wealthy. The things that wealthy people deal with that the rest of us don't. And again, make the distinction. I was reading an article today. If you happen to be a captain and you've worked for the county of Los Angeles for more than 10 years and you're a lifeguard, your top salary here in Los Angeles might be as much as $440,000 a year. So there are some professions that, to me, that seems a little extreme. But it is nonetheless in the category of what one might say is at least a living. I know doctors that don't make that kind of money, by the way. I was reading another article today. I just kind of did a tertiary search. You know, treasure hunting has become a big thing again in our culture. The Nuestra de Senora was found off the coast of Portugal. $500 million in gold coins. They spent about two and a half years sucking up all the coins off the bottom of the ocean, some 500,000 of them, by the way, only to have the Spanish government make a claim against those coins because those coins were lost in a battle with Britain. And here's all this money, this time, this technology, deep submersibles that were used to fetch these things off the ocean floor, and now you got zip. Money is fleeting. It's truly here today and gone tomorrow. And we need to be careful how much attention we pay to it because who wouldn't want to have $500 million in gold coins? Amen? I mean, come on, you're a little bit nuts if you wouldn't actually want that. If somebody gave it to you, it's like, no thanks. The question is, what are you going to do with it if you do get it? Is it going to become a god? Are you going to keep looking? Are you going to keep searching? When is enough enough might be the question. Scripture reminds us with clothes and food, raiment and shelter, be content with these things. I had a friend who served for a long time in South Sudan. South Sudan, most of the people lived there in what are called tuple huts, which are round huts made out of mud, thatched roof. You've probably seen them. But in talking with some of the village elders, they sat down and had a meeting because they wanted to build a school. And they were going to borrow money to build the school. And the village elders said, you're crazy. And the discussion went along the lines of this. Well, in America we have this, and in America we have that, and in America we all drive cars. A village elder with nothing said, yes, but you don't own your car, you don't own your house, you don't own the money in your bank account. In fact, you owe your soul to the government. I own my hut. Amen? There's a lot to be said for having no debt. You see, sometimes we even talk about debt as if it's some wonderful thing. 
The Bible actually says that the borrower is always slave to the lender. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have a mortgage, but what it does mean is you can get so deeply in debt that you become enslaved to the people who gave you the money to keep something that perhaps God never wanted you to have. And so keep that in mind as we look at this passage tonight, because it really is not a condemnation against being wealthy. It's a condemnation of having the type of wealth and then squandering it on yourself that makes you a slave to the money instead of the money useful to the king for the kingdom. Clearly speaks to our culture and our American way of life. It's almost becoming a prophet here if you want to look at it that way. Go now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Interesting when you study history, because if you really look at the industrial, specifically the industrial revolution, and really that period of time in our history, when things began to become uh, what we would say more equalized between the wealthy and the poor, it actually worked in reverse of that, didn't it? Actually, the poor became more poor, and the rich became richer. Enter during that period of time, people like the Vanderbilts, railroad industries, the Rothschilds, banking, all these incredible conglomerate companies that were nothing more than a bunch of people getting together with an idea and then selling it to you and calling it a joint stock company. You see, during the Industrial Revolution, what actually was spawned was also the writings of men like Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx, Karl Barth. You have these people who saw all of this going on, looked at the common person and said, I got it. The idea is we'll take everything and then we'll distribute it equally. You know what the problem is with that? The guy's doing the distribution. What was birthed out of that? Communist oligarchies. And so you now, instead of having railroad magnets, you had very wealthy rulers who were also in charge of pretty much all of the wealth because the problem is the human nature. The problem is not the money. And the problem isn't the distribution of the money in that sense. The problem is where there is tremendous wealth, there is tremendous temptation. And so if you look at what happened during those times, hundreds of books have been written about that period of time in history. But money went from being something that was personal, you carried it in a bag in your pocket, to being something that was fake. It actually was on a piece of paper called a stock certificate. And if you had the stock certificate, you owned part of the future wealth of that corporation and all of its assets. Here's the problem. They didn't actually have to be profitable companies. They could just take money from people, put out some products, and then when they went bankrupt, guess what happened to the guy who bought the joint stock certificates? Well, he was broke. She was broke. Do you think the person who actually owned the corporation was actually broke? The answer is almost never. Because the problem's not the wealth. It's the person who's holding the wealth. And that's what James is really trying to identify here. The problem's not the money. Out of that, all kinds of things, the Bolshevik Revolution, 
the czars, the oligarchs, Marxism, China, all of a sudden, now you have a third of the world's population running around with Chairman Mao's little red book going, this is the greatest thing in the world. Mm, Probably not. China has some of the greatest wealth in the world. Some of the single richest people in the world are actually Chinese. But it's unequally distributed. Why? Not because the wealth is the problem, because the hearts of men are darkened. And so when you think on this process, you have to get what James is getting at. Otherwise, you'll start to hate money. And money actually can be a good thing. You think our missionaries that we support enjoy getting their paychecks every month? Well, they most certainly do. They feed their families with it. They pay their rents with it. They take care of the needs of the church with it. Money can be a very good thing. Someone needs a surgery. You want to be able to pay the the doctor that performs that surgery. You know, most of us need a car. I mean, trying to walk to downtown L.A., though probably faster at 8 o'clock in the morning, um, it's not, not going to get you there on time because it's just too far. He says all kinds of things that money can buy that are actually good things. But what do, how do we treat that, that wealth? The more money that mankind has acquired the more people have been separated by wealth. That's why we have this phrase, the one percenters. Why is that? Because there are the uber wealthy that control a very large percentage of the world's wealth. That's true. But it doesn't mean that everybody's in poverty. It just means that those that have it, if they use it correctly, also employ a vast majority of the world's population. So what is James actually getting at in this passage? There are some truths that are found here because the word for howl, um, it expresses a sound and it's actually the the crying aloud of the gods. It's it's as if the miseries that are going to come upon you are unique to this type of wealth. It's something that you would have to understand from that perspective And it actually suggests that there would be hardship. It suggests that there would be suffering. It it suggests that to have that kind of wealth comes with it comes incredible responsibility. And that is true. There are some fabulously wealthy people that are also fabulously generous. Giving away vast sums of wealth to wealthy causes. And so... James now tells us what really he's looking at, what the scriptures really are saying, and what the Holy Spirit wants us to glean. Notice the first thing. Ultimately, verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. All wealth ultimately depreciates. All wealth. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You know, eventually, it's all going to dissipate. It will eventually disappear. There are very few fortunes that have stayed around for more than about 160 years. They change hands. The person becomes unwealthy. There's an unwise sibling that gets involved in the mix. And eventually, the ultra-wealthy, very, 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 very infrequently, do the ultra-wealthy actually get to pass that wealth along. There are a few exceptions, but they're very rare. 
So what happens? They spend all their time trying to hoard and guard something that they actually can't keep because here's what happens. You croak. You die. You're dead as a doornail. You're gone. And that money belongs to somebody else. It's that simple. You cannot take it with you. It is, you, you know, Bill Gates is not going to, if he gets to heaven, I don't know if he knows the Lord or not, but he's not going to walk up and go, I have $85 billion in my suitcases. It's not going to happen. He's going to get to heaven and he's going to be penniless because you won't need money when you get there. Amen? God equals it all out. And so we spend all this time worrying about these things. And can you imagine all the drama that goes on in, in ultra-wealthy people's lives? When I was in business, I worked for some of the wealthiest people that were in the country at the time. People that I'll leave their corporations out of it, but they, they, owned a, they owned some very significant businesses worth many, many tens of billions of dollars. And I remember flying in a helicopter over a ranch that we were building, and the owner of that company was looking down on the ranch, and, and he specifically looked at me, he says, I don't like the way the lakes are laid out, because the big duck is not, it's in, not in proportion to the little duck's. Now, bear in mind, we're about 1,800 to 2,000 feet off the ground in a Sikorsky helicopter, okay? The kind with the folding landing gear. He goes, I want you to see something. And we're looking down. Can I just throw a little thing out there? Who do you think sees whether the big duck and the little duck are in proportion? It isn't your average person, because most of us don't fly around in a Sikorsky helicopter looking at lakes. Well, he didn't want his clients when they were flown in to his property to see that the lakes were out of proportion. He got a very large bill for redigging the lakes so the ducks, the big duck and the little ducks would be in proportion as bodies of water. His children were kidnapped, held for ransom. Spent all that time and all that money, divorced multiple times. Why? Because he cared about money. He was worried about keeping his fortune. And he eventually died. And those monies no longer belonged to him or his family. They were passed along to the United States government. You, you see, we think about things as if it'll last forever. Oh, if I just have this. The word riches here, palutos, is a unique word. It actually can mean deceitful. So when it says deceitful riches, it's actually talking about the word that's used for rich. It's deceitful riches, ill-gotten gains, things that maybe don't even belong to you, but you have them anyway. The word for moth-eaten points to something that's full of holes. You know, you think you have all this money stored up and then all of a sudden you get cancer. really doesn't matter how much you have, does it? When your kids are kidnapped, 
you couldn't care less how much money you have. You just want your children back. You're willing to give all of your money up to get your children back. So there is a sense that all wealth, no matter how much of it you have, depreciates. I had a guy come to me, and he, was, he told me about this great deal he was going to get on a car. And I looked at him, I said, you realize that cars are one of the worst things that you can buy as far as an investment, right? They're one of the very few things that you can pay full price, drive it off the lot, and you lost thousands of dollars the moment you drive it off the lot. Now, if you own a car dealership, forgive me for what I'm saying right now, because I think most of us kind of understand this a little bit. My point is not that. Car dealers need to stay in business, and they sell you a product, and you take it with you. But you have a sense, well, this is just, it's the only one like it. And that was the point of this young man. Well, there's none like this one. Guess what showed up in his parking lot at work the next day? One exactly like the one that he got told was the only one in Southern California. Same wheels, same tires, same paint job. He was furious. He tried to take it back. Oh, no. No, you drove it off the lot. We're not taking that back. Is there something wrong? No. You see, it depreciates. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths can eat and rust can corrode. Thieves can break in and steal but rather lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Heavenly things. The second thing is the nature of wealth. See there in verse 3, is that of corruption. Your gold and your silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be witness against you and eat your flesh like fire because you've heaped up treasure for the last days. Many people think that they can trust in riches. It's just simply not true. Now, praise, the, praise God that he would give us riches, but the bottom line is, is Psalm 50 actually tells us that everything on this earth belongs to the Lord. So it's all his, and however God distributes it, that's a good thing. He gives it to people in the right measure. He gives it to them in the right proportion to who they are and their station in life and all those things. God, when he gives you things, you can be sure he gave you what you're supposed to have. But when you set out on a mission on, to, to kind of enrich yourself, ultimately you're going to find out what it actually is. Here's the neat thing about money, specifically coins, very specifically precious metal coins. If they are in circulation, they do not get corroded. If you're passing around a silver coin or a gold coin, it will not get corroded. The wear of it being used we'll keep it from getting corroded. You know when it gets corroded? When you stick it someplace and try and store it up. That's when it will tarnish. And so the point here is, when you try and store things up, when you don't keep them in the circulation, when you're unwilling to use the Lord's things for the Lord's good, then those things, the Lord actually allows them to often be corrupted or corroded. And so he's really saying to us, it's like, I, I give you things so that they can pass through your hands to be a blessing to your family, to your children's children is what the Bible actually says. You should leave an inheritance to them, by the way, but not for us to hoard up so that we begin to trust in the riches. 
Because that's a problem. That's exactly what happened to Solomon, was it not? What's Solomon known for? Wisdom, right? Ask me for anything. Solomon asked for wisdom. Book of Proverbs is testimony to that wisdom. But what happens at the end of his life? I will increase my barns. I have plenty But I'm going to make some new ones. He didn't need any new ones. He needed to take what he already had and use it for the Lord. But he was so worried that he fell into sexual sin. He fell into perversion because he was not using what he had for God's glory. He was storing it up for his own glory. There's a message there. Be very careful. Again, Nothing wrong with taking care of your family, having a nice home, nice cars. All that stuff's fine with God. He doesn't care. It's all his anyway. But use it for his glory and don't trust in those things. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and the strength. Amen? Commit your way unto him. Let him guide and direct your path and what to do with those things. People that have salted away their wealth in vaults and treasure chambers ultimately are, are forced very often, to dispense with it. Buried treasure tarnishes. Used treasure does not. For those of you that are a fan of Princess Bride, I will be using some Princess Bride analogies over the next few weeks. The word for rust here is actually ios. You combine it with cane, iocane, powder, it is actually poison. So, The Greek word there actually means that rust is poisonous. It actually is a sign that what is on it is corrupted. And so when you think about it, what were some of the problem areas in the life of Jesus? You remember what was going on with Judas? Judas was one of one as far as the disciples. What was his official title? He was the keeper of the money bag. Amen? Do you know why he had the 30 pieces? Because he was the keeper of the money bag. The rest of the disciples, it says about them, Jesus even said it. He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And so there was a problem with it. And because he was tempted with wealth was the reason that he could sell out Jesus. Those 30 pieces of silver ultimately cost him his life. He went out and hung himself. So what he tried to keep in that bag for himself, he ended up giving to unscrupulous people, and it cost him his life. There's a picture there. When what you have in your pocket becomes a temptation to do business with evil people, it will get you in a whole bunch of trouble. Be very careful. The nature of wealth on this earth ultimately can lead to corruption. A third thing, and this is really the vision that the Lord has for wealth in this world. And when you think on this, think of it this way. Notice what he says, you have heaped treasure together for the last days. And this is looking into the future. That phrase, last days, is actually thinking about literally the the last days, the final days of mankind's time here on earth. People think 
that they can escape what's coming in the last days because they have enough money to buy themselves out. They won't have to deal with the Antichrist because they'll be in on the business deals. They'll have enough money, they won't have to worry about the mark of the beast. They won't have to concern themselves with the Antichrist. Well, if he does come, I won't need anything from him because I've taken care of my own future. This is really dangerous thinking because the day of the Lord actually is coming and gold and silver won't get you through it. You don't even want to be here when that day comes. You want to hear that trumpet and be raised with the dead in Christ and be meeting the Lord in the air. You want to be taken home. You don't want to be here for the Antichrist. You want to be in heaven. You want to be with the Lord and then come back with him when he returns the second time. But as you look at this, Jacob was the first one to mention this final, this last day. There are actually 14 references to it in the Old Testament. They're found from Genesis all the way to Micah. So they're across the, the, the breadth of the entirety of the Old, the Old Testament. And I think really... In that sense, James was looking forward. He's saying, "Mm, you better be careful because these things can set you up in the very last days to where you're set up for what the Antichrist will actually do. What will the Antichrist do? The Antichrist is going to have a one-world government. What's one of the big things that we're fighting over right now amongst ourselves? Government. The Antichrist is going to fix that. What's the second thing he's going to do? A one-world religion. What's going on in our world right now? Well, all roads lead to heaven. We all just need to kind of, you know, lay out this whole Jesus is the only way thing. That's too narrow. Well, the problem is Jesus said Jesus is the only way. So it is narrow. In fact, he said narrow is the way that leads unto righteousness, and few there are that find it. So the whole object of him saying that it's narrow is that it's narrow, It's narrow. He's the only way. He's the only truth, the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So all other roads lead somewhere else. Amen? Not heaven. What's the third part of his plan? You guessed it. Money. A singular monetary system. What is the world arguing over? We call it the world's reserve currency. It's still the U.S. dollar. But not for long, the way things are going. So the Antichrist comes along, and his bait is just put everything into a common pot, and I will benevolently take care of all of you. Oh, and by the way, you need a chip in the back of your hand or your forehead. And we'll just scan you. That's why I can tell you the vaccine is not it. Why? The church is still here. Amen? <laughs> Don't worry about that aspect of it, for sure. Secondarily, it's for one purpose. To buy and sell. Nobody's buying and selling because they do or do not have the vaccine. But there will come a point in time when what James is getting at will be true. People will try and buy their way into an eternal state of rest 
and they're going to be sorely disappointed because you can't buy your way into heaven. It's a free gift that comes through knowing Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, and there is no other way. Amen? Jesus actually addresses this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's Gospel. They, giant corporations, dread hostile takeovers, unscrupulous manipulators of the stock market, try and you know, weasel their way into things, all kinds of pyramid schemes and things that you can get involved in. Probably just about every ancient, aging uh, Hollywood actor or actress at some point in time has peddled either gold or some form of something to, you know, well, I keep my gold here. Look, if you've got some gold, great. It's not actually a bad investment. It's done fairly well over time. But you can't buy your way into heaven with gold coins. So don't think you can. James was poor. His father was poor. Jesus was poor. His father was poor. All the disciples were poor. There is a blessedness to being dependent on the Lord. And again, do not mistake what I am saying or what the Bible plainly teaches. It isn't that God is saying we all need to be poor, but the fact of the matter is there's less temptation for someone who doesn't have money. There's a tremendous temptation for people who have money to trust in their wealth. It's like, well, you know, I'll I'll get through it. I mean, after all, I don't need to do anything other than just trust what I got in the bank. It won't work. There is a day of reckoning. Notice how this deceit of that time is described there in verse 4. For indeed the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. When you have to deceive people to get money, there's an awful lot of that that goes on. You remember the mortgage crisis of 2008? You know what that was? That was unscrupulous banks selling mortgages to people who should have never had mortgages. They couldn't afford them. And so they pumped this thing called the American dream and convinced everybody, well, you know, in five years, the home price will skyrocket. And you'll be able to take your equity and you'll be able to refinance your home and you're going to have all kinds of, guess what? Wealth. What happened? Home prices went the other direction. Guess who still owed the mortgage that they got that was at a subprime lending rate that was off the charts? Why? Because they were trying to get something they feel everybody had to have, and they were willing to do something that was unscrupulous. They knew. Those mortgage applications were quite specific. But what happens? person comes and says, well... You know, we don't really need to fill that page out. Well, that's the page that verifies your income. Well, you're getting a better job next year, right? And by the way, I have friends in the banking industry, and they actually showed me some of the things that people turned in. And they were just flat-out lies. Trying to get something unscrupulously, they ended up getting Nothing. And in fact, they got a bunch of debt. There's no shortcut. 
God is able to give to those who are his. My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, amen? Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, provisionally, he's able to do it all. But if you start trusting in this world and its system, prepare for a real disaster at some point in time. These people held back wages by fraud. They hired them. They were day day laborers, but they didn't pay them. As Jesus said, the, the honorable landowner settles his debts with his hired hands at the end of the day. And some of them came early, some of them came late, some of them came in the middle of the day, but they all got paid. Amen? You, you got you to pay your debts. We have, we have to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Uh, that's always what believers should do. To be unscrupulous is to be against the will of God. Notice the discernment and how God discerned this deceit. Cry out. Because the cries of the reapers, the people who did the work, the people that right now are being taken advantage of by the systems that are in place in our country. And this goes across racial lines, this goes across socioeconomic lines. This is speaking of anyone who takes advantage of anyone else. Don't think for one minute that God doesn't see every last bit of it. Cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. That same term is translated Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven, Yahweh, the big guy. The one who was and is and is to come. Him. Nothing gets by. His, he, does, he hears it all. Every backroom deal. Every hateful word. Everything that is a cheat and a lie. When someone suffers, God doesn't miss any of it. And he will make it up. Whether he makes it up here on this earth or he makes it up later, he will take care of it. He's just. And he's perfectly just, church. He's perfectly just. And we can trust him with that. It doesn't mean that we don't seek justice, by the way. But it does mean even if you don't see it, God saw it, and God is able to bring that justice to bear. He is the Lord of hosts. Interesting that the first time that this phrase is used is in the life of David. You all know the story. It's when he faced Goliath. When David faced Goliath, that's the name that David used. He says, you come, up, come at me with a spear and a sword, and I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts. So you keep boasting, you stand there nice and tall, but you're going to be a dead man because God's on my side and he's not on your side. Amen? It's the same picture. So be careful, because sometimes we can get caught up in kind of the vengeance of retribution. We can get caught up in trying to, you know, work things out ourselves when God's already got a plan to work them out. And again, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's not that you shouldn't endeavor to take care of your family. Do all the things that you can, but know this. 
There's a God who loves you infinitely behind the scenes, that sees everything, that has all the resources, and he is able to deliver you from the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear. And if he needs to use a couple of stones to knock out a giant, he's good at it. Amen? Philistine roared. David said, I don't care. God's on my side. Goliath never stood a chance. And your enemies don't stand a chance when you stand in the Lord. When you stand in the Lord, your enemies actually don't stand a chance. Because Lord of hosts is still available to each one of us. Notice the wickedness. You have lived on the earth in pleasure, verse 5, and in luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the just, and he does not resist you. In other words, you have had everything that you could have ever wanted. This story is told in great detail in Luke chapter 16. I'd encourage you online, you can go and pull up our archive there and just listen to the studies on Luke 16 and get the whole picture, but let me encapsulate it for you. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is begging crumbs. He's treated like an animal. They both die. They both end up in a place called Sheol, the abode of the dead. And there is a gulf separating the two of them. And the rich man, believing that he still has power, believing that he still has riches, believing he still has the upper hand, says, Hey, Abraham, why don't you send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in water and cool my thirst because I'm thirsty? No, sorry, there's a gulf fixed between us. You cannot come to us and we cannot come to you. What's Lazarus the beggar doing? The Bible says he's sitting in paradise, the paradise of God waiting for that day when Jesus empties that abuso out and takes him home to heaven, but he's doing just fine. He's good. The tables got flipped. You don't want to be like that rich man because that rich man didn't think he was going to die. That rich man thought he had it made. But that rich man was on his way out that evening. He just didn't know it. And that's the deal with riches. We make our plans. And again, plans are good. You know, I always get people, well, you said, you know. Plans are good. Hear what I just said. Plans are good. Matter of fact, you should have plans. Let me get this out of the way. You should have retirement accounts. You should be paying into Social Security. You should definitely have life insurance. You should take care of your family. You should have a savings account. You should have all those things. You should have a plan for your family's future. Okay? You should have all of those things as best as you possibly can. But know this your plans are just that they're plans. You may not make it to the end of your plans. You have those plans, but you let God ordain your steps. However many of them you got, I don't know. 
Make some wonderful plans, but don't hope in the plans, as we saw last time. Save for a rainy day, but don't trust in the savings, is the picture here. You see, you don't want to be like the rich man. You want to be like Lazarus, because now he's the one lying in luxury. He's the one that's in peace. He's the one that's no longer oppressed, but sitting there in joy. Why? Because he lived his life in a way that pleases God. That's what we want to do. And finally, as we wrap this up, James speaks this final word, you fatted your hearts as in the day of slaughter. People who trust in wealth, people who trust in riches, indulge themselves, are almost always completely careless and clueless of the consequences. That's why you see so many people who've had wealth. I was reading a whole series of articles of people. Whitney Houston was amongst those. She died a pauper. One of the greatest voices that this world has ever been blessed with. She died a pauper. Any of you fans of Wizard of Oz? Judy Garland was homeless when she died. You would think, you know, I can't imagine what the royalties are worth today, but I'm pretty sure why. Trusting in the riches. You, you look at what happens very often with people that have massive amounts of wealth, and before you know it, that amount of wealth isn't enough. It's like, well, I bought this island, I bought that island, I bought this jet. You sit there and talk to people and they're like, well, you know, it's only $50 million. Only 50 million. You know how many homeless people you could feed with $50 million forever? Forever. I guarantee you I could feed 100,000 homeless people forever with $50 million. Guarantee it. No problem. They're not going to be having ribeyes every night, but I guarantee you we can feed them every single day. Three squares. Well, you know, I just had to get rid of that jet. You know, really didn't have enough room for my poker table in the back. God wants us to be concerned about the things he's concerned about. What has James already said? True religion is this, that you take care of widows and orphans. People who don't have what they need. And so if we're not taking care of people who don't have what they need, then maybe we don't need the private jet. Maybe we don't need the bigger house. Maybe we don't need the fourth car. Maybe we don't need that extra long RV. Look, if you got an RV, praise God. I actually would like to have an RV someday. It just seems like a cool thing to do. I don't know. But I'll be shopping on Craigslist for it. I'm getting me a deal. <laughs> Maybe. But the bottom line is how many people, how many of you watched? I've had friends that have done this. It's like, well, you know, the new model came out. How many miles you got on it? Eight. How old's your RV? Well, you know, it's, it's almost two years old now. 
Have you driven it anywhere? Yeah, we took it uh, out in the driveway. Our kids stayed in it when they were with us. It's like we're so weird with these things. You look at them and you go, you know you can rent one of those, right? This is going to cost you $275,000. Yeah, but I want to own it. There's the problem. There's the problem. Because you never do own it. You're just choosing to spend God's money that way. You really want to be concerned about that. Because come judgment day, we're all going to give an account for everything that we did while we're here. Good and bad. And again, God's not against RVs. He's not against nice cars. But they better glorify him. Otherwise, you're going to have to give an account. It's like, Jeff, why'd you buy that thing? Well, Lord, I want to be able to look at him. Well, we, we looked around and it was a super great deal. We used it and got rid of it and we got almost everything we paid for it. We got a whole bunch of vacations that would have otherwise cost us other things. You know, if that's your thinking, there's some pretty good logic there. You're actually saving some money. But it's just so you can say it's yours? Kind of what James is getting at. It's a heart thing. You don't want a fat heart. You want a bankrupt heart that needs to be filled with Jesus every day. You want a heart that says, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want. You want to give me something, praise you for it. If you don't, that's good. And I want to turn your attention as we wrap this up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the, the best admonition in all of Scripture that I can point you to, and it's so often misquoted. Paul, as he writes to Timothy there in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, the love of money is the root. It's the central root cause of the problem. It is the root of all kinds of evil. That passage does not say that money is the root. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds. It doesn't say that all money is evil. It says it's the root cause of all kinds of evil when you love money. We get that problem solved, then a whole bunch of money can be a whole bunch of good. You can do fabulous things with a whole bunch of money. And I pray, let me just say this very clearly. I pray that God blesses every person in this room, every person online, every person who will ever listen to this message with so much money you have to figure out how to use it for the king and the kingdom. That's my prayer. I would pray that we're fabulously wealthy, every last one of us, but that we use that wealth for the glory of the king. That we're not married to it, that we don't trust in it, that we're not serving it, it is serving the Lord, and we are just a vehicle through which it passes. That's what I pray for. Because anything else, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of not good things. We don't want that. I don't need any other not good things in my life. My sin nature is quite sufficient to come up with plenty of things that I can struggle with. 
Godly people do godly things with God's money. You can remember it that way. Godly people do godly things with God's money. Ungodly people do ungodly things with God's money. It's as simple as that. You want to be a godly person doing godly things with God's money, and God will bless you for it. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? Don't brag about it. Be blessed and take those blessings and use them to bless other people. Father, thank you for your word being so concise and on point. And Lord, we pray that the things that we possess, the things that are in our grasp, that your Bible says, your word says, Lord, your word to us is that we are simply stewards and overseers of the things of God. And that's all things, Lord. That's our home. That's our cars. That's even our bodies. It's certainly our bank accounts. It's the things that we would call possessions. Lord, everything that is in our hands is actually yours. Uh, Your name is there someplace on the back of everything written with a magic marker. It can't be removed. It says, this belongs to Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hold on to things lightly, that we'd be generous. Lord, that we would take the things that you've entrusted to us and and seek, as the parable of the talent says, to go out and invest them for your kingdom, for your namesake, and that you would take the blessings that we have and that you'd multiply them. Lord, we're not ashamed to be blessed. We just don't want to have to be ashamed that we took those blessings and hid them under a rock. And so God, give us the right view of the things of this earth as it pertains to money. Lord, help us to never brag about it. Help us to be grateful for it, to use your things for your purposes because they truly belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.